You're listening to a Why Now podcast. This is Golden Nuggets podcast on whynow.co.uk. I'm your host, Al, and I'm a B teacher of 15 years. This podcast is about interviewing key influencers in education and giving them a platform to deliver their story. I want to explore why and how they do what they do to better inform parents and pupils on their education journey. Okay, and welcome back to the Golden Nuggets podcast. Um, we're here today with Neil Rowlings. We're going to talk about the purpose of coaching the directors of sport and their influence on education. Hey, Neil, how are you getting on, mate? You okay? Okay, thank you. Yeah, recently recovered and back in the land of the living. And um, just talk to uh, us about a little bit about who you are and, and what you've done. Well, over the last 39 years, uh, split that into two parts, really. The first 21, I ran sport in four different independent schools, uh, starting with three years on a small school in Merseyside, then six years at Magdalen College School in Oxford, very academic boys' city day school, uh, then 10 years at Sedbur, um very sporty outdoor boarding school in the north of England, uh, and then finished off at Cheltenham College, uh, which day boarding, sort of a uh, bit of both. And I ran the rugby and crickets as well as the sport in, in all of those schools. And um, in your in your opinion, what is the purpose of school sport? I think um, I think school sport has confused itself uh, over the years what it's there for, and there's been a recent shift. Um, I think, in the way people look at it. I think for the first 150 years that it was there, it saw its purpose as the the school's marquee athletes winning matches against other schools that reflected upon the the status of the school. Um, And there's still a dimension of that. And I think schools confuse themselves about whether that's what they're trying to do or whether they're trying to do something with a broader uh, impact. And I I think the... um, the landscape shifted a lot in probably the last 10 or 15 years where schools are still outcome aware but much more purpose driven and see i think a bigger range of purpose because i think the, the the central shift is that sport now schools now aspire that sport that physical activity impacts on all pupils not just the marquee athletes and i think now um Rates of participation are probably as important as, uh, as, as results are. And obviously, widening participation means going beyond the traditional activities. There's been quite a, uh, an irony over recent years where schools have got involved in this arms race of facility development, but all the facilities that have developed have been indoors. Swimming pools, sports halls, etc., where the programme is still based on outdoor team games. So we end up with this tension between the two where kids not unreasonably want to use these uh, sexy new facilities, but schools require a critical mass of them to carry on playing outdoor games. And where those two things meet has caused an issue. I think also um, schools have probably never had better facilities for uh, conditioning. And those kids, and and I think the, the the big opportunity for the future is in developing a culture of health and fitness across a school, not just a culture of hearty athleticism. 
Uh, let's rewind the clock slightly. What was it like for you growing up? Uh, what did a PE lesson, lesson look like to you? It looked pretty basic, really. Um, it involved a lot of running around the field, a lot of press-ups, and a lot of um, a lot of being shouted at. Uh, and general abuse seemed to be the uh, the stocking trade of the practitioner. And it was, and I think probably uh, continued to be long after I was at school in the 70s, an entirely meritocratic thing that the best kids got a better deal and no one apologised for that. And if you, um, if I was batting, I batted all afternoon and if you weren't, you could uh, sit on the side or field at fine leg at both ends and no one saw anything wrong with that at all. And I think that's that shift has been part of... Um, what's happened in recent years. And I ran into an old friend, Mike Hirsch, outstanding cricket coach, ran the cricket at Durham School for donkey's years, Australian guy. And he said recently, we were talking about changes in school cricket. And he said, um, harking back to the days when we used to compete against each other, he said, um, you know, back in those days, 20 years ago, said, my aim would be that my team beat your team. He said, nowadays, my aim is to get everyone in the team into the game. And if we win, that's great but it's more important to have everyone playing. Now, I think we probably have to find the delicate middle line that enables the best athletes to stretch themselves, but but also enables the run-of-the-mill athletes to have a positive experience and the people who aren't engaged by team games to have a meaningful experience or create a meaningful relationship with exercise that's going to last a lifetime. It's quite... To uh, darkly amusing, I think that when you when you talk to directors of sport and say, you know, what 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 would be your success criteria? What would make you feel you've done a good job? Um, pretty much always they list engaging kids in lifelong activity, but actually, if you look at the programmes that they run, many of them aren't aimed at that at all, and the least able kids are um, cut adrift from physical activity at a fairly early stage and I think that's probably the um, the shift that the industry is trying to address but uncomfortable with where the relationship lies between trying to win trophies and also trying to engage all kids. I think also the um, and probably these uh, uh, unique times we find ourselves in have probably exposed how important the social side of sport is. And the interesting thing, I think, if you if you talk to school leavers, 18-year-olds, at this sort of time of year, most years as I do, and say to them, you know, what's, what have you enjoyed most about your time in school sports? And it doesn't matter whether they've been at very high-performing schools, run-of-the-mill schools, boys' schools, co-ed schools, whatever it is, um, they say the same thing everywhere. And that is, the thing I've enjoyed most is playing with my mates. And yet, the thing that the school focuses on is who scored the number of goals and what's in the trophy cabinet. And I think we've got this disconnect between the outcome and the input. And when, when people get together, whether they've played at school, at clubs, whatever, in years, and you'll, as you'll discover when you get as old as me, everything's about, do you remember when? Do you remember that time when? And it's very rarely, sometimes it is, but it's very rarely the, the, the do you remember that time when we won? It's about, do you remember that time when we had a great, experience what what was what was your what was your moment your magic moment where you you had the greatest experience um i i think i i 
went to a school that didn't play a lot of sport and the sport it played was pretty motley and I learned to love sport through clubs and I and club sport and and that's it's influenced me really in the way that you know, schools aim to provide the best of everything for, for kids but put the you know the fields are immaculate the pitches the kits immaculate the Everything is first class, which is great, and I don't disapprove of that, but I think that contributes to kids not persisting with club sport, university sport, when it's a bit more motley and they've got to try a bit harder. And I went to, um, I started with club cricket, pedalling my bike with my, my bag on, you know, five miles each way, and I just loved it from moment one. Playing, playing with adults to start with, uh, and then when I got older, I got into club rugby, uh, and what I uh, what I got out of that, I think far more than the performance was the camaraderie of work of playing, working, having a beer with other people, many of whom are now, you know, been friends for fifty years, and and I think that's long long after. Yes, there's moments of magic along the way, and yes, there's there's wins, there's losses, there's triumphs, there's disasters, but actually those. Those things individually, I think, become less important than the cocktail of all of them that's thrown together into this thing called sport. And I, I think we are in danger. We, we have to be conscious that we don't end up like North America, where a very small number of gladiatorial athletes perform and everyone else sits there eating popcorn and watching. And I think the, the thing that is in most danger in uh, sport in Britain is not high performance. I think high performance has never been higher. The kids who are who are the the top athletes in schools have never been performing at a higher level, and they've never had a better preparation for it. And and I think you see that in its impact in professional sport. But I don't believe it's the purpose of schools to provide players for professional sport. I believe it's the purpose of schools to let to to encourage kids to fall in love with sport or at least fall in love with healthy active lifestyles and I, I think the um and that's that falling in love with sport is not ability dependent you don't have to be big strong athletic etc to do that and I fear for the um the future of recreational club sport. I don't fear for the future of, of the top level of club sport at all. I think that's in, in really good health. But I fear for the, the future. At my rugby club, uh, there's fewer teams than there ever were. The, the, the best teams are better than they've ever been. At my cricket club, there's fewer teams, there's fewer players than there ever were. And the, the, the commitment that those people have to play in every week is probably lower than it's ever been. And I think we've probably not in schools done enough to promote that dimension of it when we've been looking at the trophy cabinet and how we get the Uber athletes um, as good as they can be. Do you think with that last point, though, it, it, have you seen any changes in re, like regionally? So, for example, I've got my local rugby club uh, down the road from me in London and it's absolutely packed. But they've had a lot of support and financial support from the RFU, but they've also had uh, a private owner buy some land and they've had some money being pumped back into it. And so they've, and they've also subsidised it heavily. So, you know, is it a funding issue possibly in some parts of the country? I, I, don't, I don't think it's a funding thing. In fact, I think probably the irony is that, that club and school sports facilities 
are probably better than they've ever been. Um, I, I do think probably both in schools and in club sport, London and the South East is a different issue from everyone else. Um, I don't know why that is. My son lives in London, plays rugby every Saturday there. And as you say, there's there's lots of clubs, there's lots of teams, there's lots of players. That doesn't seem to... I don't think it's a North or South thing. It's a London and everywhere else thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because uh, everything's closer together, there's less travel time, there's less inconvenience. Uh, maybe it's because there's more people coming out of games-playing schools in those areas than elsewhere. Uh, I don't know why that is, and I don't know why there are hot spots of of it. And but, but I I I guess it's the club situation. The better it's run at a club, the more people will will gravitate towards it. Mm. I mean, who was your? I mean, you mentioned about clubs rather than your school, but who were your main influences growing up in terms of like getting involved in sport? The uh, the the some of the older players when I was a I was fourteen when I started playing club cricket. Uh, had a massive influence on me, and I, I remember one of, one of my early games and early games in a, in a sort of um, performance team. I remember um, terribly keen to get everything right and ter- full of enthusiasm. And our team are batting, and I'm I'm in at five, waiting to bat, and keen to get everything right. And um, one of our blokes, uh, one of our opening batsmen, hits a four, and I watch the ball go over the rope and clap. And there's an old bloke, an old bloke who you swear is Cheshire Blazer, who came over to me and put his hand on my shoulder and said, young man, in my team, we clap the shot, not the fact it's gone for four. And uh, and people like that who I think, and in, in the era of, um, I think people probably played club sport longer then, so there were these sort of iconic older players with a reputation behind them, uh, sometimes a little bit embellished, but who did actually have a genuine interest in, in bringing through the next generation um, and introducing them to both the game and everything that went with it. <laughs> I had a look at a picture the other day. It was the only game I played with my dad. I was 18. He must have been 46 and he was still playing. <laughs> Just looking good. Crikey, I don't know how, the, how they used to do it, but I know the, the game's changed a lot since then, hasn't it? And some of those changes in the game, both the school game and the club game, I think haven't that have improved the level of performance, uh, particularly um, particularly the conditioning side of it, have probably shortened the careers of people like that. There are other social factors as well, I think, but um, I think the lifelong club sport player is probably not a thing of the past, but becoming a, uh, a minority. Mm. Well, um, let's talk about what you're actually doing right now in terms of you, 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 you seem to be quite a busy man from what I've read about you. <laughs> uh, well, since I worked, finished working in schools 18 years ago and um, um, we started this operation, we provide uh, training, recruitment and advisory services for schools in sport. Uh, a significant number of our uh, clients are independent schools or grammar schools, traditional games playing schools. Um, uh, and a lot of what we do not is in we, is in coach development, but also in advising schools on developing programs and and wrestling with some of those issues that we talked about earlier. And we also recruit and train directors of sport. Uh, and I think that that's uh, probably a reflection. I don't think there's anyone who trains heads of maths because school's quite clear 
what it wants a head of maths to do and what what background they come from and how you judge one from another. And I think uh, that's not the same with directors of sport because the schools are less clear what they want a director of sport to deliver. And I think that's probably changed a lot. And it certainly changed in the time that I was in schools when you went from essentially being, you know, the head coach, chief organiser and major disciplinarian. Uh, and, and I think the role, the role of director of sport has become much more complex, much more different, and actually much further in most schools, much, much further away from the front line. The, the important things that directors of sport do now are not coach the best 11 girls to win something or the best 15 boys to win something, but actually to build a programme that's got, um, that impacts positively on all pupils. But I think that there are some specific challenges. We, we are, we're in an era where school sport is shifting from its sort of traditional compulsion for for a hundred years, people were compelled to play the, the culturally significant games, and probably more people learned to hate playing rugby and hate playing cricket than learned to love it. But no one ever asked them, and neither uh, neither were they offered a choice. And for the variety of factors, some of them social, some of them linked with um, uh, I think linked with the safety concerns over rugby linked with the time of cricket in, in the exam term, uh, but other factors as well have caused schools to relax, remove that compulsion and replace it with a good degree of choice. And I think as soon as you, re as soon as you take the compulsion away, the only thing that keeps it moving then is culture. And so probably the most um, significant thing that a director of sport does now is build a culture in which people want to participate and which in and the stronger that culture is the more people want to participate the more different things they want to participate in and the, there's a parallel in clubs no one has to play at a hockey club or a netball club they play if they want to and that has to influence the, the quality of the experience that the club puts on in front of them. And I think that school sport is experiencing some of those market forces in a way that it's never done before. Uh, I think also a, another significant uh, challenge for a director of sport now is one of quality control. Because as soon as you say, as soon as you re remove, um, as soon as you remove meritocracy as an operating principle, so as soon as you depart from the fact that, that from the assumption that the best kids, the early developing athletes, uh, get the best deal, as soon as you move away from that and replace it with democracy and assume that everyone is entitled to a high quality experience, not the same experience, but a high quality experience where high quality will have different faces in different environments, as soon as you do that, then you create a massive challenge of quality control. Because if your rugby programme is extremely demanding and time-consuming, etc., and next to that someone can choose to participate in, in badminton that lasts 20 minutes and isn't very demanding, then people are making choices for the wrong reasons. If that badminton programme that's, that's sat next to yours is also very time-consuming, demanding, etc., etc., then people are making positive choices. And I think with the, the advent, the perfectly right advent of choice, comes a much, much bigger challenge of quality control than there's ever been before. And I think that's linked uh, essentially with the shifting challenge of workforce that schools have. 
where for 100 years, games were coached by a, a variety of standards, by a lot of people who were classroom teachers, willing amateurs who were prepared to help. And I think there's been a number of factors that have influenced that. One is the assumption that, that a lot of teachers do that is probably um, want to do it or have the capacity to do it is probably no longer the case. A lot of schools that were boys' schools are now co-educational and have more women on the staff who tend to be less experienced and inclined to help with that. And so I think there's there's a developing mixed economy of uh, coaching in school where you've got some specialist teachers, maybe PE teachers, etc., some classroom teachers who are still involved, but then an evolving um, workforce of full and part-time sports coaches who uh, many of whom you know come come from the elite game, but those people come into schools without the understanding necessarily of what the aim of the thing is, because they've come from an environment where the aim is very clear. The aim is to score more goals than the opposition. And when you're saying that we've got a when a school is saying it's got a wider set of success criteria, it therefore and a wider uh, workforce trying to deliver it. There's obviously a bigger challenge for the leader a bigger leadership challenge for the person in charge to ensure that all of those people are operating to the same principles, the same standards, etc. Can we just rewind slightly to culture? Um, <clears throat> talk to me about so a few hot topics at the moment, behaviours of parents and behaviours of pupils um, and coaches for that matter as well. And, and I think I would... Uh, I think I'd start it the other way around, actually, Al. I think I'd start with coaches because most things in schools reflect what the person stood in front does. You know, an, an, an amazing classroom, an amazing orderly classroom with a lot of learning going on, that's determined not by the facilities, not by the, the computers or the chairs or anything else. It's determined entirely by the person at the front. And I think what schools... Uh, what schools have to do is to be clear what the culture is they're trying to build. And that should be all over the walls, all over, all over assembly. There shouldn't be any uncertainty at all of what that is. And it should be uh, consistently delivered by all the staff. And the parents shouldn't be in any doubt at all either. And I think as soon as there is confusion about the purpose of school sports as, and that confusion is usually centres around how important winning is. So if, if winning's the most important thing, and if coaches encourage pupils to believe that, and if coaches conduct themselves on the sideline and in practices like that's the most important thing, then the pupils pick up their cues from it and the parents do as well. And I, I think schools need to be clear with parents what what they're trying to achieve and give the parents a positive role in that. But if there's confusion and the parent who is probably on that Saturday afternoon going to watch Chelsea play in some or Harlequins or whatever, it's not surprising that they bring the similar set of values to the school match on a Saturday morning. And I think, I don't think you can blame the parent for that at the outset. You've got to blame the school for not making the culture and the success criteria clear. If they make that clear and the parents still, then, then that needs to be addressed. But I think what schools have not been good at is communicating with parents that there is a difference between elite sport and school sport. There's a difference between Chelsea and school sport in the morning. 
and that, that difference is quite fundamental. It's not just the outcome, it's the process. And I think that confusion, that, you know, what is the purpose of school sport, that confusion is what leads to an absence of culture. Because it's an, there's an absence of culture. If 10 people in the school all do something, they all do it differently. And so the opposite of culture is every man for himself. And I think, I think it's an area of the director of sports responsibility, but it's also an area of, of the, the school's leadership responsibility to be completely clear of the culture that they're trying to deliver and what, what outstanding coaching looks like, what outstanding coach behaviour looks like, what outstanding pupil behaviour looks like, what outstanding parent behaviour looks like, because they're all part of that. What, what is outstanding coach or pupil behaviour? What do you want them to demonstrate? I, um, I think the, the most significant thing, I think, is, I think if, if we separate coach behaviour from pupil behaviour, because I will, and we'll talk about that in a second, okay. I think the coach has got to create an environment that kids want to be in. And, and I, I think the, the, you know, what, what makes people want to be in that environment and I think we, you know, we bandy this, um, this this expression around, you know, did, did you have a great game? What's a great game? You know, we, we came back, we had a great game. What is in a great game? And and I think I've asked people this all over the world, and, and what they say is a great game is a game where, first of all, the outcome's in doubt. So it's the teams are well-matched, the outcome's in doubt, the lead might change hands, and it might be you know uh, decided very late on. The second criteria of a great game is the, something to do with the playing standard. We played better than we usually did. We did things, things came off, we, we, we strung things together, and there's the buzz from doing things well, the achievement buzz. But the third dimension of a great game, and the people are completely universal in, in identifying this, is the tone that surrounds it. The, the relationship between the players within a team, the relationship between one team and another, the relationship with the referee, and the atmosphere created by the people on the touchline, who in the context of school sports are usually the coaches and the parents. So if we want to create, if we believe that a positive experience encourages people to want to come back and to create a lifetime relationship with physical activity that might start with uh, a relationship with traditional games, with rugby and netball, hockey, cricket, whatever it is, but then develop into um, going to the gym, mountaineering cycling whatever it is later if we want people to, to develop a lifelong positive relationship with physical activity their experience of it at school has got to be positive and if we know that the the formula for creating the positive experience the formula for creating the great game is uncertain outcome improved performance tone of the occasion then it seems to me fairly straightforward that we have to in our in creating our competition programme, we have to find uncertain outcomes. And I think schools are probably better at that than ever before, where they collaborate with each other, they talk to each other, they take the best players off, they avoid the one-sided game, huh. much more than they used to do in the 80s. So you know, people are collaborating to create the uncertain outcome. That, that coaching, and a lot of, I think probably a lot of coaching is, better than it's been before but coaching enables players to achieve i.e to be better than they were before and to get a sense of achievements out of it but then the fundamental one is what is the atmosphere in which the game's played you know, what 
how do the players within one team engage with each other? Are they encouraging each other? Are they blaming each other? How do they engage with the opposition and the referee? And how do the coaches and the parents behave on the touchline? It's absolutely clear what the things are, what the components are that do keep people engaged, that do keep give people a positive experience. And therefore, I think a little bit disappointing that those aren't more consistently applied and that schools don't insist on them. There's quite a lot there. <laughs> I was trying to absorb it all. I was thinking... There's some. I've been on one of your presentations before, and you mentioned some things which resonated with me. Delayed gratification, um, empathy, selflessness, coachability. Um, let's start with delayed gratification. Um, why was why was that so important? Um, I think, I personally, I think that's become more important in. Um, as the world has changed, the, the world of a modern child is a very instant one. And I think the idea of um, applying yourself to something, to working at something, to doing things that aren't, aren't necessarily appealing in the short term, with the, because, because the medium term output is recognised as desirable, I think is crucial. And you take the, exam, the example of people um, in conditioning training, you know, going to the gym, going running, etc., where the, the short term may not be appealing. You sit there on the gym thinking, really, am I going to go sit there on the sofa before you go? Am I going to go? Am I going to do this? It's going to be difficult. But people do it or don't do it because they believe that the medium term outcome is worth it. And I think I think the opportunities for kids to learn that now are very much more limited. Uh, and therefore, I think physical activity, there's no better environment for learning delayed gratification and physical activity there's no better environment for for learning that i've got a, that working hard and being uncomfortable now whether it's in the environment of rugby or conditioning or whatever that those things or, or whether it's getting on the bus for a three-hour bus ride the things that aren't immediately appealing that if i do this thing that isn't really appe immediately appealing there will be a reward further down the line and i think the opportunities to learn that are very much more very much more limited in today's society than they were previously and i think linked with that is the issue of selflessness of teamship that i do something that isn't the best thing for me it's the best thing for other people and again i think those opportunities are less wide than they used to be and i think they're probably less well supported by parents than they used to be where people are thinking, but I think that that is also connected with culture. Where the culture's strong, people do the right thing, and where the culture's not strong, they do the selfish thing. And there, therefore, I think though you know, those all of those factors are knitted together. But I think if if we believe, as I do, that that physical activity in schools can impact beyond the physical, if if it if the purpose of of school sport was only physical to make people stronger and fitter, then we wouldn't de deliver it the way that it's in. And for a hundred years, it, it started, liberal education started being about developing character. And we've sort of lost the way of that. In, we've sort of lost the focus on that behind a focus on high performance. And I think part of the adjustment that the, 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 the sector is going through, part of the shifting landscape, is to recognise that there aren't just physical out outcomes, 
there are personal and social outcomes as well. And I think those, those qualities of selflessness, those qualities of respecting the opposition, respecting the game, I think are, uh, and of determination, all, all of those things that are that shape behaviour rather than just shape technical and tactical. I think if if school sport has a real have an enduring value on people's lives, it isn't learning the drag flick. Most people get through the world quite get through life quite satisfactorily without bowling a leg break. But I don't think people gets through life satisfactorily without learning to collaborate with other people. So actually the most enduring outcomes that we've got are not the technical and tactical, they're the personal. And one of my reservations about um, coaching awards and national governing body coaching awards is that they focus on technical and tactical. They don't focus on teamship, developing delayed gratification, de developing courage, developing persistence, and therefore coaches are poorly prepared for that. They're, they're very well prepared for putting cones on the ground and dribbling around them. They're not very well prepared for, for developing social skills, personal integration, selflessness, etc. And I think that's part of the leadership challenge of school sport, is to be clear what, what outcomes we want people to have and actually the technical and tactical are only one of those. They're not irrelevant, but they're only one of those. And they're more relevant to some kids than others, because there are some pupils for whom the standard of the, the, the technical level of performance is something of profound indifference. There are some kids for whom it's, it's, it's massive. And I think we, we have to accept, we use these, you know, we, we use the word uh, sport, we use the word rugby or netball, whatever, as if it's one thing and of course it isn't it's it's different things to different pupils for some people it's an absolute lifelong focus and, and a 24 hour a day obsession for some people it's an hour a week's recreation and and i think if we're going to engage all pupils we've got to be able to recognize we've got to be able to have hooks that that provide for all of those things so the the, the committed player is frustrated by a program that hasn't got enough demand in it but equally, the recreational player drifts away from the game if it's too demanding. And I think we've, the, the, the responsibility of a school is to try and create a programme. I think it's like fishing. The more hooks you've got in the water, the more different type of fish you can land. And I think if a school wants to engage all its pupils in meaningful physical activity, it's got to have, it's got to recognise what works for each of those constituencies, but recognise that the thing that, that goes across all of those is high quality. People gravitate towards things that are high quality, but high quality performance coaching will look a lot different from high quality engagement coaching and high quality engagement coaching will look a lot different from health and fitness coaching. I mean, it's interesting, you know, we've touched on high performance sport, sport for all, that continuum between engagement and performance on that continuum. But We've talked very much about emotional intelligence and the factors that you've mentioned there. Why is emotional intelligence so important now from you know going into life? Like, how does it transfer? Uh, I think I think the most significant thing for, for the, the first thing that, that the human race did after it uh, in organising itself was to create communities, and instead of roaming around, it 
domesticated animals and it created tribes that stayed in one place. So hardwired into the, 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 the species is society, community and collaboration. And I think that that for me, and, and that for me is the the reason why team games still have legitimate primacy in the program, because for some pupils, not all pupils, and it's interesting your expression "sport for all," because I don't believe in sport for all. If sport is, a, a, but I think it's quite it's quite instructive that we can't even agree the nomenclature around it, whether we're talking about sport or are we talking about games or PE or physical activity and sport meaning competitive games was never for all. Uh. There was never a time when all, all boys loved rugby and all girls loved hockey. There was a time when they all had to play, but that was compulsion. And there never will be a time when sport engages everyone. And for me, the, 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 the difference, the, the crucial difference is that sport may not be for all. The better it is, the more the higher proportion will be engaged in it at different levels, the better you, you deliver it. But sport may not be for all, but healthy, active lifestyles can be. And I think the historic danger of, of school sport was that when, when pupils who weren't games-facing dissociated themselves from school sport when when the gates of choice were thrown over open whether that was age 12 or age 18 when when choice emerged and they rejected traditional games they rejected exercise and healthy active lifestyles for the rest of their lives with it and i think what we have to recognize is that sport is not for all we we create the opportunity we create high quality opportunities for people to be involved in it but actually what we're trying to create are positive attitudes to activity and and i think that's the sport may not be for all but healthy active lifestyles can be and i think that's the uh, the, the challenge for schools the reason i think the primacy of team games is still valid is that i think some of those personal qualities we talked about can it's not inevitable it's only it's about how it's delivered but can be developed through those things and to come back to you know what is the point why is it important it's important because we are a social race and i think sport has got an important place in encouraging people to collaborate to work together in groups to, to have a, an identity and those pupils who don't want to do that in a team environment can still get the same sense of achievement and working with people at an individual level as people do in gyms and running and cycling, etc. But I think the, the collaborative social nature of it is why it's unique and, what, and why it's so important. That's far more important than backhand drive or the top spin serve. It's interesting. Um, have you got your own kids, by the way? Are they all growing up now or...? I've got a son of uh, an errant son of 28 who, um, who, having spent all his life growing up in the wilds of Cumbria, now thinks um, living in London's the most, the purest pleasure. What did you do with him growing up? How did you get? Because obviously he's playing sports, so you must have had a, a good influence on him. Uh, it probably he went to a very sport-facing school, but I was always keen, uh, after, and this was after I'd finished working in schools. Um, but I was always keen that he didn't feel under pressure to uh, perform and that, he, and that his, his worth wasn't measured by what team he was in or how many goals he scored. Um, I am absolutely delighted that he now um, 
it plays every Saturday, uh, plays rugby at a, at a social level in London, much as you described earlier. Uh, and he's in his fourth year of playing with the same blokes in the same environment and they win some games, they lose some games, they've been promoted once, relegated once, but actually the perfect, they're never going to be in the Premiership and I'm not sure that's the aim of what they're trying to do, but the same blokes are enjoying each other's company, collaborating, working together, having a game every week. It's a high point of the week uh, and I think that's, that's a, a, a significant dimension and I think probably... Within that, you know, you go into the gym twice a week, you, it, you stay active when you stop playing rugby, you, you stay active, you find other outlets. And I think that the most significant thing that schools can do is not teach people rugby, hockey, cricket, netball. They're the tools in the bag. They're the tools in the bag to do an absolutely fundamentally important job. And that fundamentally important job is to enable all kids to have a positive experience and generate a lifelong positive relationship with physical activity. Well, that's absolutely brilliant. Um, just thinking golden nuggets to wrap it up. You've, you've given me one there. Is there, a, is there any more that you want to share with us? <laughs> I, I'm not a great believer in, uh, in the magic bullet, actually, uh, Alistair. I believe in, um, with hearing, the only place where success comes before work is in the dictionary. And the, there isn't a magic bullet. There's, there's a hundred things that can all influence in, in small ways. I'm a believer in, in um, incremental achievement. Uh, and, I'm, and in the same way that I don't think a school can suddenly say, we're going to have a culture that does this, it's got to do... 200 things slightly differently, all of which point in the same direction, and it's got to do them consistently until it sees an impact. And it always uh, frustrates me when schools say, oh, we've done that, we tried that and it didn't work. We tried it for 10 minutes and it didn't work, and therefore we go on to something <laughs> else. And, and I, think, um, I think the most significant, I wouldn't call this a golden nugget, I would call this good sense really, but I think we have to know, we have to be completely clear um, and I work a lot with schools, I advise them what they do, and I always say to the head, describe to me what this will look like if it was brilliant. And if you can't tell me what it would look like when it's brilliant, we've got no chance of achieving it. And I think that the most significant thing that a school can have, that a director of sport can have, that an individual coach can have, that a parent can have, is a clear vision of what success looks like in all its dimensions, in its performance, in its, its, its character, in its behaviours. Um, and if you have that, that clarity, then working back, putting, doing the things you need to do in order to achieve that become much more straightforward. Well, mate, that's, that's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. And um, thanks very much for your time. I'm glad you're feeling a lot better and stuff. And, uh, and you stay safe and stay at home. Thanks very much, Alistair. Pleasure. Pleasure.